and sort of working through that material and and uh, making an alliance with Charlotte Liaison from Passion Pictures, it was sort of interesting to spin mainstream genres upside down. And this is a commercial for Amnesty International, but it's sort of a spoof on Shop TV. Back. So from ice cream makers, thanks Jim, to weaponry. Now, what have we got today, Clive? Well, today we have got the villain's favorite, a veteran of more than 75 wars. It's the AK-47 assault rifle. Now, so come over here, let me show you this in its full splendor. Here it is. Beautiful. Now, we have 10,000 of these in secret locations outside the UK to sell today. I might have to treat myself to one, <laughs> I think. Now, the phone lines are open, folks, so give us a call. And if you call within the hour, there's a free gift with every purchase. A year's worth of free ammunition. So, how do you pay? Well, we'll accept hard cash, dollars through offshore accounts. We'll even accept diamonds. Clive, we're not going to get into trouble for this, are we? You don't need to worry about getting into trouble because, surprisingly, Sue, there are rather convenient loopholes in the rules governing the arms trade around the world, uh -huh. so you needn't worry, you won't get in trouble. Oh, that's good to know, Clive. And it's good for business as well. Now, if you are sitting at home and thinking, is an assault rifle difficult to use, then you need not worry. What do you think child soldiers are using in the likes of Liberia and the Democratic Republic of Congo? Not one of these. They are. They're using AK-47s, right? Well, I tell you what, we've got Sam in the studio now, haven't we? And he's mm. going to do a demo. Okay, Sam, so in your own time, whenever you're ready. Wow, that Look is that. seriously impressive. Mm. Now, if you like what you've just seen there, then get phoning. I personally think that is very, very impressive. Mm. That look, head, lungs, heart, obliterated, fantastic. Absolutely. So, guys, if you like the look of what you've just seen, then make sure you pick up that phone now. The number's on your screen. That's right. Don't miss out. OK, we'll be back shortly, but uh, what's coming up, Sue? Oh, well, we're going back to Jim now. He's been joined by Val, and I believe they're modelling some very attractive his and hers dressing gowns. Oh, fantastic. So that was for MSC International. Um, but also, um, I don't know, there's so many things that, like, jump around and stuff. There's also a, a very good example is the Yes Man, who, like, they sort of even mimic that stance even more, and they become even completely part of that world, and they pretend to be the spokesman here, for example, for Dow Chemical, who sort of, in, 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 in an interventionist way, trying to, to claim responsibility for the Bhopal disaster, but it's, of course, completely fake. But in the meantime, being able to get on BBC World and getting the message out there in a sort of a way where he totally mimics that that stands is sort of was sort of quite interesting. This is the yes man from Paris now is Jude Finsterra. He's a spokesman for Dow Chemicals, which took over Union Carbide. Uh, good morning to you. Um, a day of commemoration in Bhopal. Do you now accept uh, responsibility for what happened? Steve, yes. T today is a great day for all of us at Dow and I think for millions of people around the world as well. It's 20 years since the disaster and today I'm very, very happy to announce that for the first time Dow is accepting full responsibility for the Bhopal catastrophe. We have a $12 billion plan to finally, at long last, fully compensate the victims, including the 120,000 who may need medical care for their entire lives, and to fully and swiftly remediate the Bhopal plant site. 
Now, when we acquired Union Carbide three years ago, we knew what we were getting, and it's worth $12 billion. $12 billion. We have resolved to liquidate Union Carbide, this nightmare for the world and this headache for Dow, and use the $12 billion to provide more than $500 per victim, which is all that they've seen, a maximum of just about $500 per victim. It is not plenty good for an Indian, as one of our spokespersons unfortunately said a couple of years ago. In fact, it pays for one year of medical care. We will adequately compensate the victims. Uh, furthermore, we will perform a full and complete remediation of the Bhopal site, which, as you mentioned, has not been cleaned up. When Union Carbide abandoned the site 20 years ago uh, or 16 years ago, they left tons of toxic waste, which continues, the site continues to be used as a playground by children. Uh, water continues to be uh, drunk from the, the groundwater underneath. It's a mess, Steve. And so later on, of course, BBC World got a phone from Dow Chemicals immediately, and so they had to make a disclaimer later that night that actually he was not the real spokesperson for uh, Dow Chemicals. Just to uh, reiterate what Jude Finisterra, the spokesman for Dow Chemicals, has just said, he says Dow Chemicals now fully accept responsibility for the events in Bhopal 20 years ago, and they will cooperate in future legal action. Industrial accident is being remembered in India today. This morning at 900 GMT and uh, 10 GMT, BBC World ran an interview with someone purporting to be from the Dow Chemical Company about Bhopal. This interview was inaccurate and part of a deception. The person interviewed didn't represent the company. We want to make clear that the information he gave was entirely inaccurate. We apologize to Dow and to anyone who watched the interview who may have been misled by it. So now let me jump maybe to sort of, maybe we can go back to the commercial. And what we included was sort of like uh, a couple of real commercials as well. That they're, they're sort of anti-commercials. They, they question the format from within. It's sort of a new trend also in, in the commercial industry to actually be witty about what, actually they're, 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 what they're actually propagating. In, in situ here now is the Dove commercial. But they, they're actually questioning the, uh, what, what ideal for beauty stands for. And funny enough, it's very schizophrenic because an anti-commercial seems to be sell even more than actually a regular commercial because it draws more attention. Then what happened with uh, with passion pictures? It was sort of they came up with this um, 
uh, parody on the Dove commercial, which is called Slop Evolution. jump maybe I'll, I'll I'll quickly show a couple more this is this is um it's also commercial but it's sort of a joke on the rappers video format but at the same time it also includes sort of uh, um, white America sort of criticism of sort of Connecticut where the rich family lives and it sort of portrays their life in a sort of little documentary but at the same time it's a commercial for vodka oh. What's up, fellas? Yo, yo, where my wasps at? MV, Martha's Vineyard, Hollaback! Tell Buffy to chirp me. But then, since we were working with the Iraq War and, and maybe also newborn Christians and fundamentalism, we thought we also going to include, maybe people know this because this has been sent through YouTube many, many times, but it sort of deals with also our take on fundamentalism. Thank you. 
I'll I'll show one more music clip, which is uh, it's actually from a, a film called Surplus. Um, I think it's the same collective. I think they're actually from Sweden, um, from Malmo, I think. <laughs> My love, there's only you in my life, the only thing that's bright. My first love, your every breath that I take, your every step I make. Many people have seen Double Take, but maybe I can jump uh, quickly to a little blip, because it shows a little bit how actually the, um, there is a co coffee commercial here, but then later on you see how it actually has been um, twisted, that it certainly, the narrator comes to talk about the murder plot, and there's the psycho music that we, we cut the original track from the commercial and then the psycho music is put underneath and suddenly you see how that commercial totally shifts. But in fact, the whole film is about two guys talking about, you know, you have Hitchcock and Hitchcock, but you also have those political guys, Khrushchev and Nixon, for example, always talking about rockets and then you have all these commercials where the woman actually in the kitchen doesn't know how to make coffee. And you have also the sexual politics that sort of like sip throughout the film that are sort of a, a portrait of that time period. But at the very end, you see how actually the, the, the coffee becomes a means to actually for the women to take revenge. And with Tom McCarthy, we had discussed this over and over. Of course, it's two guys talking, but we wanted to actually have Hitchcock disguising with, with a psycho wig, like putting on a wig, dressing up as a woman. He would be the one actually killing the other Hitchcock. Um, Ideally sort of suited to this type of program. This next one, for example, it's deadly. <gasps> this coffee is criminal. Honey, you killed the petunias. Then you admit it. Your coffee really is murder. Papa Eddie, my coffee, it's murder. You see, crime does not pay. You must have a sponsor. Try Folgers, mountain grown for richer flavor. Well, all right. You know, it's a crime. Maybe we loved cinema so much we annihilated it, I ventured. The mountains. It's possible, he concurred. Ooh. We always fall in love with our characters. That's why we killed them. We lingered for a while on the pleasures of murder. I argued that dying was an act of love, of complete surrender. We always played our crimes as though they were love scenes. Intimate and domestic, he murmured in agreement. Television brought murder into the American home. 
where it always belonged. So tell me, how would you like to die? <laughs> Come now, you mocked me. We have imagined every type of murder, shooting, strangulation, stabbing, being held to death from a national monument, marriage, oh yes, marriage. Marriage can be very deadly. Some of our most exquisite murders have been conjugal, performed in all tenderness with the aid of a kitchen appliance. Personally, I like poison. It can only be administered to those who trust their killer. The family, spouses, lovers. Murder is a gift, like love. So tell me, how would you like to die? Okay. So I'm trying to find a little bit of links that would lead up to talking a bit more about Double Take. But um, maybe I, I first go back to Dal history and maybe I show a little clip where also the same sort of mode is used where, you know, what I like to do is sometimes to uh, mix genres that sort of masquerade as another one and the commercial was sort of one sense. But uh, here as well when the narrator is talking about uh, the, the the story in the, in Dal history where there's actually a novelist and a terrorist having a discussion, and the terrorist contends the, the terrorist uh, the, the novelist contends that actually he says, you know, well maybe the terrorist has taken over my role in society because he's able to play the media much better than I do. My role as a writer is actually over because the terrorist is able to play the media much better, and and sort of that whole discussion is set underneath the chronology of airplanes, but at the same time you see how through the history of, of how that airplane hijacking has been represented, how that has changed and how the commercial, the commercial break becomes part of that language. Dying is the quality of the air. It's everywhere and nowhere. Men shout as they die to be noticed, remembered for a second or two. The dead have faces, automobiles. If you don't know a name, you know a street name, a dog's name. He drove an orange Mazda. You know a couple of useless things about a person that become major facts of identification when he dies suddenly, after a short illness, in his own bed, with a comforter and matching pillows, on a rainy Wednesday afternoon, thinking about his dry cleaning. sort of so crucial to show how even if you start zapping you know how we relate to imagery nowadays is so so different than it used to be before because those images are spliced 
together and you start zapping, but you don't even have to zap. Immediately after that, after the news, suddenly you get sort of a strawberry ice cream commercial or other stuff. And sort of that sort of baffled me how, how actually those things go hand in hand and how zapping as a form of poetry is so much part of our world. And then when I started out with sort of showing George Bush on CNN, what we juxtaposed in the video library was also Larry King, but instead of interviewing the president, he's interviewing a woman who's been abducted by uh, aliens. Oh, I can't explain, Rocky. All I know is that he's not far away from us and that he's going to cause us a lot of trouble. Invaders from Mars. He saw them land from outer space. He saw them capture innocent people only to destroy. <laughs> Capturing humans at will for their own sinister purposes. Believe what people are saying. Yes. And your belief is what? Many have been abducted? What is, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What's your belief? Well, I think that this is a, a real phenomenon, that people have been abducted, that the magnitude of it is fairly extensive, and that uh, this is something that uh, has been going on for at least a hundred years, uh, and uh, something that is important and, and should be taken cognizance of. The hundred-year factor was based on hypnotic regression? Well, we're limited by the age of the people who come to see us to see Thank how you. far it goes back, and uh, we can date it pretty with, with a lot of accuracy back to the 1910s and then uh, probably back to the 1896-1897 airship wave. Right, Terry Matthews is not her real name, and she's using the pseudonym and wearing glasses to protect her identity. Why? Well, there are a lot of horror stories about people who have come forward and talked about this subject before. And horror stories like? Um, having shows use people's real name has cost people jobs and harassment of their children. You mean people get fired because they say this happened to them? Ridiculed, harassed. Uh, you have been on these kind of trips against your will for how long? I believe that I have been since I was a child. When you say I believe that I have been, have you or haven't you? I mean, I know I flew a plane last week. I don't believe I flew a plane. I know I flew a plane. I know that I have. Um, for a long time, I suspected it. Uh, there were too many things that happened when I was a child that were not normal, and I thought they were. Things that now happen to your children as well? Yes. You have how many children? I have three. Are you married? No, not now. Uh, was your husband a believer? Uh, we didn't discuss this. Was it a cause of stress in the marriage? Probably. Okay. Tell me your earliest memory of being abducted. What happened? My earliest memory um, was, I, well, there are suspicions about age five, but my earliest... Actual memory. Absolute, actual memory is when I was nine. And um, I was in my bedroom uh, playing with my paper dolls, and I believed at the time that my father was walking into the room. And what it was was not my father, it was a gray. So she says it's a gray, it's a gray ET, it's like an alien that big with the big tall eyes, which is now like omnipresent from the mid-80s when Whitley Strieber published his book, Mid-80s. That image was on the cover and became very, very much present in, in mainstream media in the United States. But also with mid-80s is that 
it's beginning of E.T. Is, is getting out uh, by Steven Spielberg. And also what for us was sort of interesting to analyze, like towards the end of the 80s, you have the collapse of the Soviet Union and on, on, on like sort of a, on a bigger global scale, America had to redefine itself, had to redefine its imaginary other. So you see that at the beginning of the 90s with the X-Files, with Independence Day, that, that resurgence of the alien is, is becoming very present in mainstream media and Hollywood and in relationship also to a symptom maybe that is, is reigning within sort of like an unrestful America. It's also the moment where Japan was actually invading with Toyota, was invading the Japanese market, and you have a more technologically advanced society who, like Japan, is buying up sort of Hollywood and stuff, and you, you sort of like imagine, uh, imaginary uh, uh, anxiety, fear had to be filled in. And then later on, you see with the Iraq war, immediately the alien is filled in by, by the Arab or, or uh, the Iraq war, bin Laden, and, and go on. But what I was, what I thought was interesting also that she she mentions her father and the alien sort of pops up first as the image of her father, and Constance Penley did an analysis of like this is not macro politics but it's micro politics, which was sort of also a very important part in the video library, is that fam the, the, the sort of the dysfunctional family and Constance Penley refers to the patriarchal structure that has collapsed and that basically what happens is that the dad is outside the home and that the E.T. has replaced sort of the dad. And you see also, for example, in E.T., Spielberg's film, that it's a single mom with three kids, and the dad is somewhere in Mexico with uh, his, her, um, the lover. And you see the mom is at home alone, and E.T. makes his present. And it's sort of the unemployed dad sitting in front of television, sipping beers, watching UFOs on, on television. So this episode was also included in... in a, it's sort of like we called it a category, dysfunctional family. <laughs> And it's the, the Springfield it, Files is the 10th episode of The Simpsons' 8th season, which originally aired January 12th, 1997. At Moe's, on a Friday night, Homer fails a breathalyzer test and decides to walk home, takes a wrong path, and ends up in the woods. In a clearing, he sees a glowing alien. Despite it professing that it comes in peace, Homer panics and runs away screaming. The rest of the family does not believe Homer's story, and his attempts to report the alien sighting to local police are dismissed. Agents Fox Mulder and Dana Scully of the FBI hear of the sighting and investigate. Homer is ridiculed by most of the neighborhood, but Bart admits that he does believe what Homer is saying. The pair camp out in the forest, and the alien arrives and promises peace, but Homer accidentally scares... But what's funny is also that The Simpsons sort of also uses those strategies. They sort of incorporate other programs or, you know, you have the X-Files mixing, meeting uh, the, the Simpsons or what actually, but I, I don't have the original. I, I have the original without the sound, but what you hear actually is the psycho music. And while Hitchcock makes a cameo in every one of his films, he also, at one episode, he actually makes his uh, cameo appearance with his two dogs in... Uh, this particular moment in, in, the, in the Simpsons. Sort of like that moment, and it's also sort of started in the 90s, uh, was sort of also a way of the way to analyze that media landscape and language. But here I want to make a link with Double Take because that moment, also Dial History is very much framed, hijacking in itself was very much framed by the Cold War. And while Dial History sort of like it was finished, the, the editing was sort of made all in the mid-90s, sort of, the, there was this awareness that the Cold War was sort of over as the end of the Communist Party in 91, and as Boris Yeltsin is, is in power, and you see by the end of Dal history that Boris Yeltsin and Clinton are laughing on the, on the, on the White House lounge, uh, alone, and you, you think, well, was this Cold War then a joke? Now, in Double Take, the, the height of the Cold War, which was the Cuban Missile Crisis, very much sort of the whole setup of the political uh, 
sort of um, uh, storyline in Double Take. But at the very end of Double Take, what we sort of, what I, because I wanted to make an analysis with the 1980s and then leading up to, to what's going on today, but we incorporated, because beginning of the 60s, also the, the, the building up of the Berlin Wall in 1961, it, it sort of ends with the fall of the, the collapse of the, of the Berlin Wall. And then you have a moment where Reagan, because, you know, the, the wall has collapsed, the Cold War is sort of called all over with Reagan, and you see Reagan calling for sort of like a global, global military army that would fight the aliens. And that's sort of where the film ends in Double Take. Sort of, maybe I'll jump to that. You will see the credits because there was too many endings in the film, so we thought, well, let's win time, and we put that ending over the top of the credits in, in, in Double Take. And you literally see also some clips of Independence Day. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, that we could intercept and destroy strategic ballistic missiles before they reached our own soil? But isn't it worth every investment necessary to free the world from the threat of nuclear war? we need some outside universal threat our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world and yet i ask you is not an alien force already among us there are no knowns there are things we know that we know there are known unknowns. That is to say, there are things that we now know we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns. There are things we do not know we don't know. Any questions? Please feel free to ask them now. How hard was it to get the permissions for the using of the archives? Uh, well, there is a lot of stuff. Huh? There is there's my personal archives, a lot of shit that I shot. 
There's a lot of stuff that actually came from YouTube because YouTube is, is sort of a means to get there, but YouTube was also a means to, to work through the material. I was invited by the Hammer Museum in a residency in Los Angeles, so uh, they, they appointed two archivists who actually... The Hammer Museum is part of the USLA University, and they have sort of, with USLA television film archives, they have sort of an alliance, and, and I was able to do free research at the USLA film archives. But the, the head of the archives was also giving a course, and one of the students became my research assistant. And, uh, for example, a lot of stuff came from the USLA film and television archives. Then we did some extra research in, in uh, Los Angeles uh, through the Film Academy, who actually have the little home movies from Hitchcock. And it was funny to stumble onto these because they're also part of the film. And they made sort of the, the link with the Hitchcock Trust. So I was able also to use Hitchcock's home movies. But apart from that, it's, it's a very tough one because we, we sort of had a, an official commissioning editor, ZDF, from Arte, the German television. So everything had to be cleared and official. Sort of with USLA, it was sort of a good deal because it was sort of very cheap. Also with the Film Academy, we got all that footage pretty, pretty cheap. But with Universal, for example, we had a lot of clips. Uh, all that Alfred Hitchcock presents, The Birds, Psycho, all of that is universal. And that's, that was a huge chunk of the budget. Sort of there was an official budget and a, a big chunk of the budget went through actually sponsoring a big corporation. <laughs> How did you start? How did you get into this kind of analysis and uh, polit political uh, Ooh, That's a big, big question. <laughs> Yeah, but I can talk about how I started to came to f to make the film Double Take. I can talk about how Dal history came about. I don't. Uh, well, I think the Double Take and what you said about the video should be taken falls a, a bit under the same cate category, doesn't it? Well, it's also, for example, for Dal history, as I said before, like working and studying in New York and seeing what happens in the beginning of the 90s with the Iraq War and see it having being presented on television, CNN, was sort of like a big thing of like, wow, you know, how nowadays we deal with, with media and as a film student, how, what, what can I do, what can I add to that language? And when I set up this sort of uh, fictional conversation between the terrorist and the novelist, I would identify with both. It would be the novelist that sort of is renegated to a corner who hardly has any effect on society. When, when you think about it with a history writer, at the time of Napoleon, Chateaubriand had his little camping chair and he was on top of a hill sitting and writing about the war and taking that discourse back home to Paris. And he was a history writer. Uh, with Dostoevsky or, the, or the, the, the Russian novelists, the way they were part of political life was very different. But nowadays with the Iraq war, you have missiles that actually have television Dostoevsky cameras. Dostoevsky didn't uh, take up politics in his... No, but the way things were described and how a novel had effect in society was very different. Even with the Vietnam War, when a journalist came home with, with, with footage, it was very different than, for example, with the Iraq War, because history writing, uh, well, let's say Chateaubriand, it's very different history writing at that time when you compare it to a, a television camera that is mounted on top of a missile that goes directly into war. It's sort of real time, as we call but it's so much more opaque. It's more transparent, but at the same time, it's more opaque. There's no more analysis. It's so it's collapsed with, with with its own footage, and you know there's when I say Dostoevsky or writers, it's because there's a discourse. People, you know, there's the relationship with writers, and uh, you know the image, and that's what Don Delillo's writing is a lot about. Don Delillo was a big chunk of the narrative in 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 Dal history. 
is that the relationship with the image has changed so much and it has changed our relationship to to writing and how we analyze and make an analysis when I showed weapons of mass destruction weapons of mass destruction weapons of mass destruction again it collapses and there's no analysis it's just repetition and it hits you over the head and I think it's yeah. crucial to analyze all of that yeah but uh, another I was, I was thinking of that too. that's another question and you are not the one to answer it but why were the media so weak why didn't they question this this mass destruction repeating, you know? Because there's but a that's big... another question. Because there's a big corroboration between media and politics, and the media are totally manipul manipulated. There's a yes. manipulation going on. Yes. And it's also more and more the, the, they have become conglomerates, and the media is now in the hands of, of big corporations who have their own sort of like ideology they're propagating. And if you criticize, you very often criticize that you know things that are happening that would go against their agenda and and uh, when Jody Dean writes about you know the fact that the web has become sort of a little bit of a surrogate of of uh, democracy and plural not fully I wouldn't like be too optimistic or too euphoric about it but a lot of like the critical messages that you could research you could find it on the net and sort of the web has sort of replaced that sort of agenda and you don't find it on Fox or CNN, you know, even, um, you know, CNN became described as a tool of warfare because, you know, it became a tool of, of, of sort of propagation and media manipulation, even vis-a-vis -vis Saddam Hussein, because certain things were not allowed to say and, and, and the whole misrepresentation and disinformation became part of that war uh, propaganda and, and even as a tool of war itself. Don't say that you have a blog too. You're writing a blog? Excuse me? You're blogging? Uh, I don't have a really specific blog about it. The YouTube Protect was sort of part of that, but it's it's not really a blog. But indeed, we have blog. There is there's sort of, well, there's this blog of this uh, Iraqi woman who, who still lives in Baghdad, but the only way she could get her message out was through making a web blog. And I, I but yeah, it's, it's sort of, it, it's all part of that media landscape and how you can create that critical distance and short question. Uh, you started off by showing this site with uh, the remote control information. Uh -huh. Is that available on the net? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's on the net. Zappomatic.com. Zappomatic.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. But it's sort of old. I, I, we set it on the net beginning of the 2000 and I think it has to be updated with, you know, with the div TiVo, the digital video recorder and how that relationship with the, with the commercial break has changed as well. There's a little bit of that. But there was a huge sort of uh, trial where, because TiVo was trying to announce it and sell their, their, their TV recorder by saying that now you don't record the commercials. And sort of there was a huge sort of trial that companies were very upset. And so they had to take off that sort of feature of the, of the TiVo. That's in there, but not fully. So I think Zappomatic has to be updated.